Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Hoppo, and this week in the Beach Shack, we have a great episode for you. Coming up, I chat to Rosie Waterland about her family life growing up, the hard times, and her rise to fame. Lifeguard Maxie pops in to tell us about his run-in with Big Bob, and I answer a few questions from the mailbag. First up, Rosie Waterland. She's an author, podcaster, and comedian among many other things. Welcome to The Beat Shack, Rosie. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you uh, on the show. It's uh, fantastic. You've got a a great story and probably go back to when you first started. You you wrote content for Mamma Mia and all about The Bachelor. So there's a little twist there because um, Osha is the voiceover for Bondi Rescue. So, you know, I was laughing when I read that because I thought, Maybe instead of The Bachelor, you could have done on Bondi Rescue. I could have, but, I mean, <laughs> you guys don't wear as many low-cut tops that need booby tape, so probably not as much comedic material there, I guess. Yeah, Oshie was great. We're, we're quite good mates now because, you know, I started writing about The Bachelor back in Season 1, which was 2013, so it's been a long time now, and I made merciless fun of him, which he's always been very generous and lovely about. I don't write about it anymore, but I pop my head in, keep track of how he's doing, make fun of his rose ceremony voice once in a while, just keep him in check. You know, we've done now 15 years of Bondi Rescue, and he's been the voiceover for that for for many years, so Mm. yeah, he's um, a great guy, and it's good that he uh, he took it on board and, and, you know, he can take a joke, though, so it's, it's not too bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, back at the start, I think the one thing he was annoyed about is that I always used to joke that he was sponsored by Nice and Easy, the hair dye company, because I used to joke that he had <laughs> such perfect chocolatey brown hair, it couldn't possibly be his own hair colour. And he would be like, look, Rosie, it's funny, but I don't dye my hair. And, he would, <laughs> and I'd just go, yeah, all right, Osh, all right, okay. <laughs> Remains a mystery. Yeah, Will. Yeah, he's never admitted anything to us either, so we'll never know. That hair is a legend of Australian television itself. Oh, it is, definitely. So what what got you into the writing now in the first place? What sparked that to actually start writing? Oh, you know, I I went to... I always loved writing growing up. Uh, You know, I had pretty difficult childhood, and kids with childhoods like mine are always looking for sort of escape and fantasy. So I love storytelling, and then I went to drama school and studied acting for three years, and then I went to uni and studied creative writing for three years. So I'd basically been studying for six years and was only qualified to be a waitress. So I knew I had to <laughs> I had to do something and I was working in a call centre and I just started submitting little bits and pieces to Mamma Mia and eventually they offered me a job and then it kind of exploded from there. Right. Yeah, that's something. And did you think it would be that successful though when you started or it was something that just actually happened? Um, oh, you know, I'd always dreamed of being successful from when I was little. You know, realistically, I... I 
probably thought I'd still just be working in a call center at this stage. Like I, I had no concept of how big it would go. And particularly quite quickly, like once I started writing about The Bachelor and doing those recaps all those years ago, my career and profile kind of took off. And then I got a book deal and everything kind of snowballed from there. But it was a lot of hard work to get to that point. I think that's what people say is you seem like you're an overnight success, but it's kind of years and years and years of work. And then that one opportunity comes along and then it happens very quickly. But a lot goes into it beforehand, you know? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's similar to, to Bondi Rescue. People think we just were there. But I mean, I've been a lifeguard professionally now since 1991. So there's a lot of work and yeah, experience right. of being a lifeguard. And then suddenly this TV show turns up just to film us in what we do. Yeah. But there's a lot of, you know, 100 years lifeguards have been around professionally so yeah there's a lot of history and time to get to the point where it's good enough to be able to film and then opens up doors like you said it's the the writing just opens that right door to go straight through it and then everything just sort of booms from there well I think you have to have done the work to be prepared to walk through the door when it opens you know so that's the key that's right so you're talking about you you did have a rough childhood so you know tell us a bit about that I know your, your mum and dad and then I just recently I noticed that there was a, a domestic violence and, and everything you dealt with as, as a child. Yeah. And I just did a big campaign actually last week. I recorded it for domestic violence and people are telling me stuff about it. And I've sort of looked more into it since. Um, and I've never really directly been involved with, with domestic violence. I always heard about it. Mm. But just tell us a bit about your story when you, um, you know, as a child. And I'm trying to get out to help people as well because I see how so many people get caught up with all this. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, as is the case with a lot of domestic violence and sort of abusive filled childhoods, addiction and mental health played a huge part in why my parents were the way they were. I mean, my dad had schizophrenia before he died and my mum had bipolar disorder and they were both alcoholics and drug addicts. And so I think that played a huge role in them sort of going down the paths they went down. And it was difficult for my sisters and I, you know, I have three sisters and We spent our whole childhoods, you know, in and out of the foster system, living with other family members. I must have gone to, you know, at least 20 schools. I couldn't tell you the amount of houses I've lived in. Like, I can't count that. But I think what people don't realise is it's far more common than what you would ever think. And, you know, I would turn up to school every day in my uniform and go to class like everybody else. And I'd say if you went back and talked to a lot of the kids I went to school with, they would have had no idea what was going on at home for me and my sisters. Yeah. Uh, Were we all close, your sisters? Were we separated at all or you all stuck together in those times? Because I could see that, you know, if you didn't have the parents to help out you know yeah you need people around you to be able to get through these sort of situations yeah you do and it was hard I mean the foster system in Australia is notoriously under-resourced there aren't enough people fostering kids so I always say to people who ask me what can I do to help I say become a foster parent but we stayed together as much as we could but it's very difficult to place four siblings together Um, it very rarely happens so occasionally we got placed together but it did get to the point where we were each sent to different places so I mean there was a point from when I was about 14 I don't think I saw my youngest sister Isabella for almost 10 years like and my younger sister Taylor I saw her very rarely on and off until we were adults I mean it wasn't until 
we'd all sort of been sent away to different places and lived different childhoods. And then finally, when we were adults and we were in charge of our own lives, we sort of put the effort in to find each other and come back together and form a bit of a family. But yeah, unfortunately, when you're a kid, you don't have a lot of control over where you're sent and where you end up. Yeah. So that, we were split quite a bit. Yeah, it must be tough. And But did you have any sort of contact at all, even though you didn't see each other? Or it's just totally no contact for that period? It's hard to explain to people. Like my older sister has children now and they just say, well, you know, to them it's like you're always in touch with everyone all the time because everyone has a phone. And I try to say to them, this was the 90s, man. Like we didn't, there was no, like I could call my older sister on the landline. And then I think maybe in the late 90s, mobile phones became a bit of a thing. So we could keep in touch a little, but it honestly was not, I didn't find my youngest sister, Isabella, until Facebook became a thing. I found her on Facebook in about 2000, I think it was about 2009. And so social media, funnily enough, played a huge role in us finally being able to stay connected because we just didn't have tools like that back then. Right. It must have been tough. I can't imagine not being able to... I mean, I've got a brother and and the family, and we've always sort of been in contact. So I just can't imagine being isolated. You must have felt so lonely and and lost in that period. Yeah, you do. And it's um, certainly meant that we all went on to deal with issues in our adulthood. I mean, I think that's another thing people don't often talk about with these kinds of domestic abuse situations for kids is that it doesn't end the second you turn 18 and move out of home. It it travels with you into adulthood. I mean, I dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder from it all, you know, right through my 20s. I'm 34 now and I'm doing okay, but, you know, I still have mental health stuff that I deal with because of the past. Same, my sisters each have their own kind of mental health stuff that they've had to work through. So, yeah, it is difficult um, when you're a kid, but it also continues right through to when you get older. It's something that I think sticks with you for life and you constantly have to be working to make sure you're okay mentally. Yeah, it's definitely a constant battle and I see it at the beach. I mean, we deal, I don't know if you know the area around Bondi, but we deal with the, mm. from Bondi up to the Gap, um, which is yeah. renowned for people committing suicide and we end up being yeah. involved with the body retrievals of these people. And Oh, my goodness. And a lot of it comes from all the, um, you know, the, the, whatever background they're coming from and now whether that's mm. the domestic violence or the mental health issues or, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever pushes them to that to that level to do. Mm. And it just seems to be more and more and more and, and it, it's great to get you on to talk about that because I want to try. And now I've been doing a lot for it and trying to help a lot of people. I mean, I've rescued thousands of people in the ocean at Mm. the beach, but now I'm trying to help people then also on the land and and try and, you know, get get the messages across as as best as we can. Yeah, I think, gosh, that must be hard having, that's a part of Bondi Rescue when people watch, you know, the, listen to Osha's voice and see the cool opening credits and the people hanging on the sand. They don't think of that part of your job, do they? I mean, that's intense. No, that's right. And, and, I always say just because you jump off a cliff doesn't mean they die instantly either. You, you, mm. You'll have multiple injuries. There's plenty I've held till they've died in my arms because they've had the multiple injuries, but, the, but the, mm. you know, they'll die in, in, in you know, a minute, 10 minutes or, or whatever the timeline is. And, yeah. you know, there's one thing I've always kept in my mind. There's not one person that's still been alive that I've dealt with. Every single one said, I regret what I just did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
I believe that. I mean, I, you know, have written in my book about my own suicide attempt, in, you know, in the past. And and people say to me now, like, what was going through your mind? Why did you get to that place? Like, how did you get to such a bad place? And I say, well, first of all, you you don't realize you're getting to that place because if you did, you wouldn't do it. Like nobody wants to harm themselves. If you are mentally sound, you wouldn't ever dream of doing it. And so people say to me, what's your advice to people who are feeling so desperate that they might want to do something to hurt themselves? And I always say a brain that is telling you to hurt yourself is a brain that is lying to you. It's a brain that's not in a good place. And it's a brain that is having ideas and trying to solve a pain problem through, you know, ways that aren't good for you. And if you just hang on five more minutes, you'll get over that hump of feeling that desperate or even hang on one more minute or 30 more seconds Mm. because you will get to the point where you do take that step and once you've taken it you regret it you do yeah well that's what they say and a lot of the lot i've dealt with is it's that split say they're standing up on on that cliff it's that split second and you're so Mm. right in saying that you've just got to get past that yeah by another 10 or 30 seconds a minute and it could totally change the whole situation I really think so. I mean, that's, it sounds like such arbitrary advice. When people ask me, I say, just hold on a minute. And if a minute feels too long, if a minute feels like I don't have the strength for a minute, I say, try 30 seconds. And if that feels too long, try 10 seconds. Because just thinking about things in little simple blocks of time like that, when you're feeling that awful and desperate, that is the key that, you know, 10 blocks of 10 seconds from now, you'll step back. You will. Yeah, that's right. And that's what I've seen over the years. And, you know, it's devastating, though, because we become part of the grieving process for the families. They'll come down and you sort of mm-hmm. they, they want to catch up with the, the where they were last, the, the family yeah. members. And it can be quite traumatic with all of us uh, as lifeguards. Yeah, I can imagine there would be a lot of trauma and mental health ramifications that you guys would have to deal with. That'd be tough. In, I mean, back when I first started, there was nothing. It was like, it was basically the old ego, male ego of a slap on the back. Yeah, good job, yeah. toughen up and, and, and get on with it type thing. It wasn't, there was nothing where, you know, you could sit down. And I, I could see, looking back in hindsight, the effect it had on some of the older guys because I was only quite young when I started, you know, my 20s. Yeah. And looking back now to the guys that were in their 40s I worked with, and there are two that I did work with in the 90s that had committed suicide over the Mm. last 10 years. And Mm. I wonder whether dealing with what we deal with had a lot to do with it, but that'll never ever be proven. But I think that it possibly could have. I mean, it certainly would have played a part, I'm sure. And I think one of the good things about people opening up so much about mental health now and like people such as yourself who, like you say, at one point in time were just part of a culture of oh just suck it up mate now that you know you're willing to talk about things like this and we're sitting here on this podcast talking really openly about this it's it's really important that we've gone through that change and people now realize the effect that trauma actually has on a person Mm -hmm. i mean it has mental health ramifications it has physical ramifications i mean you know i went through stuff in my childhood that i'm still getting symptoms and dealing with mental health stuff and physical stuff now at 34 
So yeah. if, you know, you're not treating that, if you're not taking care of that, it will eat away at you like any other kind of physical illness will, like a cancer will yeah. even. And so it's really great that we're getting to the point now where people are starting to realize that dealing with this mental health stuff is just as important as dealing with any kind of physical stuff you may have. We'll just pause the rosy chat there. This was such an amazing conversation, I felt that it deserved to be split over two episodes. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss part two of Rosie Waterland's chat next episode. Now we're going to dive into beach banter. This week we've got lifeguard Maxi, and he's telling us about the time he messed with the wrong guy. And by mess with, I mean he did his job. Take a listen. G'day, Maxie. How are you, mate? Yeah, good hop. How are you, mate? Oh, I'm good. Uh, thanks for coming into the beach shack, mate, and uh, having a chat. It's good to be here, mate. The beach shack. What a, what a shack it is. How good is it? Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> you know how we always play pranks, and we've played plenty over the years. I thought I'd get you in and have a chat. Yeah, mate. About, yeah, what about yeah. Big Bob? Every, the Big Bob. I can't walk down the street without someone going, what about Big Bob Mirovic? So, yeah, Big Bad Bob. Why don't you tell us a bit about it then? How old were you when we played that uh, prank? Well, I was 16, 16, 17. I think it was, my, it was actually it was my first season on the beach. My first summer down there. And, you know, I wanted to make you guys proud of me by doing the right thing of getting people out of the red and yellow flags on their surfboards. And sure enough, Big Bad Bob was out in the middle there. I didn't know who he was at the time. And I was down with Matt D and Terry McDermott. And they sent me out there to, to move him along. And as I paddled out, you know, they, he told me where to go and I kind of stood me ground, which is good. Um, I told him, you know, man, I'm not going anywhere. You're not going to get another wave while I'm out here. So kind of irritated him a bit and then he splashed water at me and I splashed water back. And But you had no idea. You had, had no, no idea. idea. Absolutely thought... no idea. Yeah. Um, I thought I was just doing a good job being a lifeguard of moving a, a three out of the flags because, you know, you're not allowed to have surf riders in the flags and... I actually come into shore and, you know, I moved him away and uh, Terry was giving me a pat on the back and it was all well and good. And then sure enough, he comes marching up mm. his beat, up the beach with the blue blue board and, you know, he tried to have another argument with me. The first confrontation was out in the water. The second was out on the beach and I actually told him where to go in a professional way. And um, I said, mate, you go surf Maribor or somewhere away here. Don't, don't come back. And <laughs> he walked off the beach and I actually thought I'd, you know, I won the battle and... Yeah. So he walked off. You splashed him in the water. He's coming to the beach. He's had another go at you. Then you think you've won. I think I've won. I think an hour or two pass and I'm in the lifeguard tower with uh, Kerbox and a few of the boys. And I think Kerbox goes, is that that guy that you told to, to get out of the water before? And I see him walking down the promenade with his blue board. And, you know, sure enough, Box goes, I think he's coming in here. And I just hear this <laughs> big, big knock at the door. And I was like, oh, oh this isn't good. And then Kerbox and Denny McKell at the time actually tried to settle them down. And you can hear him going off his head going, there's some young punk in there that told me, you know, I can't surf here and blah, blah, blah. Does he know who I am? And What was the heart rate doing then? Oh, was it racing or you thought, it was, oh, I'm it was sweet. a steady 80. It was a steady 80 then. <laughs> <laughs> it was a steady 80. But uh, in my head, I'm thinking, there's no way he's going to come here and have a go. I, I think it's just Kerbox and a few of the other guys are going to settle him down and that was it. And... Kerbox actually said, come on, Maxi, come down and um, try and sort it out. And as I walked down the stairs, I just see him like clench his fists and I just turn around <laughs> and walk back up and made sure that there was uh, the desk and and him between us. So just in case he was to flare up. And then, uh, you know, 
kind of not back chatted, but I was just saying, mate, you can't be surfing in the flags, blah, 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 blah. And then Kerbock said, mate, maybe go outside and sell it outside. And <laughs> and that's where a lot of people, you know, I had no idea it was a stitch up. It was my first year on Bondo Rescue as a lifeguard. So I didn't know, you know, cameras are around, but I thought it was, they were just capturing the confrontation. I didn't realize it was a inside prank and it was all, everyone was laughing behind the scenes and walked outside and, you know, fair play to Big Bad Bob. He, he did flare up a bit and he, you know, when he did push me, it was a, it was a solid push. <laughs> He played the game well, I think. He played it well. And, uh, yeah, I still to this day, I, I just remember going, uh-oh, this is, this is not good. And, you know, he ended up going. He goes, if I see you out in the street without your little uniform on, I'm going to knock <laughs> I'm gonna knock your head off. Well, for people that don't know, it's, uh, Bob Mirovic, he was a uh, heavyweight boxer, Australian champion. So he uh, knew how to throw the punches. He was a pretty big boy and uh, little tiny skinny maxi. Yeah, I had no idea. And uh, I think the, the fourth time, the fourth confrontation, fourth time he knocked on the tower door, I actually hit under the desk and I pretend that I wasn't there because I just couldn't deal with him anymore. It just seemed like he was just getting angrier and angrier. And uh, <laughs> the next time he saw me, he was going to, you know, snap me like a par- <laughs> like a dried out pasta. So to his credit, he calmed and he, and he, you know, he apologized. And, you know, he said that I stood my ground, which is good, and earned a bit of respect with the guys. And, you know, he handed me a, a, a framed photo of him and Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, how was the heart rate Mike. once you realized it was a prank? What was the feeling then? Oh, well... It went from 80 to probably about 140, but it come back down. When when I found out it was all a little bit of a prank, the guys got me good. You know, I was nice and calm and steady. However, when he he went to uh, shape up to me again, and he actually punched me in the arm. He gave me a dead arm. So, <laughs> so that was just a knock around punch. So I hate to do what he would have done to my head. So what do you reckon? Bob won the, se- the session? Oh, definitely, mate. Definitely. Well, I think I won the first out in the water and the beach bit. But he won the last three, so it was two, three, I reckon. <laughs> Best of five. No, it was a good effort, mate. You did well. Yeah, no, it was, it was a good, good G up. You know, there's plenty more pranks that the guys did over the years, but that's definitely the memorable one. Well, thanks, Maxie, for popping into the no beach worries, shack, mate. mate. No worries. Now it's time for the mailbag, where I answer questions from you about my 30 years of lifeguard, Bondi Rescue and anything else you want me to answer. If you have any questions for me, send them in via Instagram, Life's a Beach AU. The first question today is from Shaz. Okay, this letter from Shaz. Obviously, Bondi Rescue is a global hit. Did you ever think it would reach such a wide audience? Well, I mean, Bondi Rescue was only ever meant to be a one-hour special, which ended up turning into a full series. I never thought the show would ever go outside of Australia, let alone to be global. It's now a hit show in its 16th year. So it's humbling to looking back and to see how many people it's reached and how many people we've uh, helped and and given experience in uh, water safety. The next question is from Charlotte. Thanks for writing in, Charlotte. Uh, Your question is, what inspired you to become a lifeguard? Well, it's definitely the lifestyle and the love of beaches and the ocean for me. I want to educate and help people by using my ocean skills and knowledge to educate around the world. So thanks, Charlotte, for sending uh, that letter in. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts. 
and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today. We'll catch you all next episode when we feature part two of my chat with Rosie Waterland.